This episode of the Sooty Penguin is brought to you by Blueberry Oat Bars. Do you wish you had a quick and easy breakfast that only takes three hours and a hundred dishes to make the night before? Try Blueberry Oat Bars today. Welcome to episode 75 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about mosquitoes, because if you didn't know, climate change is almost certainly going to come back to bite us. I've got like eight more of those, so buckle up. I hope they don't fly over your head. By spreading malaria and a long list of other diseases, mosquitoes are responsible for a million global deaths per year. And by increasing heat and humidity, climate change is turning many regions into environments even more suitable for mosquitoes. These effects are felt the most in tropical regions, but many regions of the U.S. even reported that 2021 was a historically bad year for mosquitoes. And that really sucks. That really bugs me. So today, we'll discuss what threats mosquitoes present, why their populations are increasing, and what we might be able to do about it. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, it's time for what I can only assume is a course taken by three biology students and an art major desperately squeezing in an elective senior year, Mosquitoes 101. If you haven't had the pleasure of itchy bumps mysteriously appearing on your body every time you go outside that only get worse when you scratch them, mosquitoes are small flying insects that infamously bite humans and animals in order to suck their blood. Interestingly, it's only the female mosquitoes biting humans and animals for blood. They need the blood to produce eggs. I have about 80 jokes for this, all of which would probably get me in trouble, so I'm just gonna quit while we're ahead. You go, girl bosses. Adult mosquitoes live about two to four weeks, depending on the species, humidity, temperature, and other environmental factors. However, female mosquitoes tend to live longer than male mosquitoes, probably because they're girl bosses. Besides, I'm sure human blood is a healthier diet than whatever the male mosquitoes are eating. I'm guessing Bud Light Doritos and raw onions when the female mosquitoes aren't home. When a mosquito or any parasite is carrying a pathogen, they are called a vector. That's right, not only do they infect us with pathogens, they infect us with high school geometry. Mosquitoes are a particularly notorious vector, though, because various mosquito species have been known to spread a long list of diseases, primarily in the tropical regions of Africa, South America, and Asia, but not exclusively. Mosquitoes are all over. 
Malaria has 241 million cases and 627,000 deaths in 2020 and can lead to fever, chills, and other flu-like symptoms. Yellow fever has 200,000 cases and 30,000 deaths per year and can lead to fever, chills, aches, and in more severe cases, bleeding, shock, organ failure, and death. Dengue had 400 million cases and 21,000 deaths per year and can lead to fever, aches, nausea, vomiting, rash, and in more severe cases, shock, internal bleeding, and death, and the list goes on. There's Zika virus, West Nile virus, chikungunya virus, encephalotides, filarial worms, and more. In fact, due to all these diseases, though primarily malaria, mosquitoes are the deadliest animal in the world responsible for over a million deaths per year, according to the World Health Organization. Compare that to 437,000 deaths per year caused by humans, 100,000 deaths per year caused by snakes, and 6 deaths per year caused by sharks, and you can see why mosquitoes might be particularly concerning. If you thought sharks, snakes, or axe murderers were scary, you've got another thing coming. If mosquitoes are, in fact, the deadliest creature on Earth, shouldn't we just get rid of them? I mean, we seem to be really good at making other animals go extinct. Let's redirect our efforts, right? Well, there's actually a bit of debate about this idea, as this video lays out. Say, if I wished on a star, and the next day all mosquitoes just poofed out of existence. Would that be so bad for the Earth? Some scientists actually say no, that if mosquitoes were suddenly ripped out of food webs, most ecosystems would heal pretty quickly, and other organisms would fill in those gaps. But other scientists argue that certain mosquito species do play important ecological roles. Take the mosquitoes that live in the Arctic of Canada and Russia. They fly around in gigantic, thick swarms and make up a huge part of the biomass there, and these mosquitoes pollinate Arctic plants and are a major food source for migrating birds. Removing these guys or other more southern species that are food for fish, birds, and other insects could send a ripple through ecosystems endangering many other plants and animals. And to hear scientists aren't in agreement on the implications of all the mosquitoes vanishing is really interesting. Perhaps, as this video suggests, some ecosystems would react differently than others. It's hard for me to imagine any plant or animal complaining about fewer mosquitoes, but I guess there's always some snitches out there. But the fact that this is even a discussion or debate makes one thing abundantly clear. Ecosystems are fragile. Largely, they're unpredictable. And any action we take could bring unintended consequences. So even though today's episode is really presenting mosquitoes as a quote-unquote problem, it's important not to lose sight of the fact that mosquitoes have a purpose in their ecosystems. They're not all bad. And if we set the goal of driving them to extinction, we may be dooming ourselves to fail. More likely than not, we'd fail at that goal. But even if we succeeded, we don't know how that would play out. It might not go well. So let's keep in mind this framing as we go forward, and remember, even with all these deadly diseases, we're looking for ways to prevent disease and manage mosquitoes, not necessarily eradicate mosquitoes. And with that, let's talk about climate change. After the female mosquito sucks your blood, she lays eggs in standing water. 
It is in the water that the eggs hatch, the larva wriggles out, and anywhere from a couple days to a month later, it grows into an adult mosquito, flies away, bites your leg, gets swatted, and dies in vain. Rather, it goes out on a limb. I told you there were lots of puns this week. Don't act like I didn't warn you. But that need for standing water to lay eggs is really significant, because as we've talked about before, warmer air holds more moisture. As a result, in many regions, climate change has led to above-average rainfall, tropical storms, and countless floods. This creates more standing water, which equals more places to lay eggs, which equals more mosquitoes, which equals more disease. Mosquitoes are also affected by temperature. Each of the 3,000 plus species of mosquito is a little different, but on the whole, mosquitoes love heat. They're like if grandparents had a travel vlog. That means a couple things. One, as climate change leads to warmer temperatures, mosquitoes may be able to travel to new regions and carry certain diseases with them. And two, Mosquito evolution actually changes, as University of Arizona's Dr. Casey Ernst explains. So that time frame between egg and adult gets shorter when the temperatures are higher. And that means those cycles of mosquito development can go faster and faster, leading to more mosquitoes in the environment. And it's not just the mosquito, it's the virus too. As I mentioned before, after a mosquito egg hatches, it can become an adult anywhere from a couple days to as long as a month, depending on when they first vote, file a tax return, and get put on hold for three days with a customer service representative. But a few days to a month is a pretty big range, and as you can imagine, with a range as big as that, there would be multiple factors explaining its variability, and it would be tricky to analyze. That's why it's a really big deal when Dr. Ernst explains that higher temperatures are a factor that makes that timescale shorter, and that it's a big enough factor to include in a presentation. Dr. Ernst points out one implication of this speedier life cycle. If mosquitoes are growing up faster, they're reproducing earlier in life, which would lead to higher mosquito populations, and as such, more chances to spread disease. But the other implication is that each new generation of mosquitoes will bring with it new mutations. This is natural selection at work. You might think of giraffes, for example. Over a long time, the giraffes with the longest necks were the most successful at finding food, even if it did hurt their odds in giraffe limbo. So they reproduced while the shorter-necked giraffes died off, and eventually all giraffes had long necks. That's over a really long time, of course, several generations. But for mosquitoes, whose entire life ranges from a few days to a few months, natural selection is happening at lightning speed. It's as if natural selection were riding in the bobsled with Alana Myers-Taylor last week. That means if, for example, you were spraying mosquitoes with a single pesticide, pretty quickly you'd get a mosquito that can resist the pesticide. That mosquito would reproduce, and all the mosquitoes in the area would then become resistant. If climate change is speeding up mosquito evolution, then it's speeding up resistance to pesticides as well. 
and mosquito populations may already be growing. They're growing faster than the population of Rams fans in L.A. Come on, L.A., it took until now for you to jump on the bandwagon? In 2021, officials in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Arizona, and Southern California all reported higher than usual, if not record, levels of mosquitoes in their regions, according to an article in Greist. Climate change certainly seems to be a driver in that population growth, but it may not be the only one. Let's go back to pesticides. One of the more historically infamous pesticides used to target mosquitoes is called DDT, or dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. Highly recommend you check out our DDT episode from last year for the full story, but in short, DDT affects insects by opening the sodium ion channels and neurons, causing them to fire spontaneously, leading the insect to spasm and eventually die. Very strong pesticide. And because of that, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, Americans used DDT a lot. Listen to this military training film from 1944. Because dysentery is second only to malaria as a threat to military operations, it is especially important to treat the slip trench and surrounding areas. Garbage pits, dugouts, and gun emplacements should be similarly sprayed. Unless the entire bivouac area is treated, an influx of insects from adjacent areas may occur. Bushes, logs, dead leaves, and the ground itself should be sprayed. Doesn't that sound like a fun time? It's so easy to forget while talking about wars that at the time, malaria and dysentery were actually front of mind. But there you have it. The message at the time, straight from the US military, was spray everything even spray outside onto the land itself. Cause how dare mosquitoes be outside in the woods, right? In the ensuing decades, it became known that DDT had many adverse effects of its own. In humans, DDT and its byproducts have been linked to nausea, diarrhea, irritation, tremors, seizures, impacts on the liver, premature births or low birth weight babies for pregnant women, and according to some studies, cancer. DDT also drove many important bird species to endangered status, hence the title of Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring. It even made its way into the oceans affecting fish and the Arctic affecting polar bears. It's honestly remarkable. Imagine if DDT were an American race contestant, it would clean up. Largely due to Rachel Carson's efforts, the United States banned DDT in 1972. Most of the rest of the world has followed suit as a result of the Stockholm Convention in 2001. But DDT is a special chemical. Not only does it travel long distances, but it takes a while to break down. It's like plastic or London Royal. According to the Environmental Protection Agency website, after the use of DDT was discontinued in the United States, its concentration in the environment and animals has decreased, but because of its persistence, residues of concern from historical use still remain. That means there is still DDT in our environment that has yet to break down. Now, let me make one point clear off the bat. We do want DDT to break down. There are other effective ways to combat mosquitoes. 
It's like wanting to get rid of our puppy's pee pad in our living room. Sure, the pee pad helps the pee issue, but it's not an ideal situation, especially when your kids get jealous and decide they're going to pee on it too. All that said, we still should acknowledge that as DDT breaks down, mosquito populations can grow. You get rid of a thing that's toxic to mosquitoes, and mosquitoes are going to thrive as a result. Since there is still DDT in our environment, according to the EPA, that process is still happening to this day. I can't say how big a driver this is, whether it's Adam Driver or Mini Driver, but we can expect some mosquito population gains could have resulted from this, and more could continue moving forward. Again, that's not a bad thing that DDT is breaking down, that's a good thing. But more mosquitoes does end up being a drawback we have to deal with in some other way. And if you don't mind, let me share one more concern I have regarding mosquito population growth. Researchers at Louisiana State University recently studied two adjacent neighborhoods in Baton Rouge, one high-income and one low-income. The low-income community right next door had a significantly higher adult and larvae abundance of the Asian tiger mosquito, which by the way is a really disastrous invasive species. Another study led by the Cary Institute monitored 13 residential blocks in Baltimore over three summers. The low-income neighborhoods not only had more mosquitoes, but bigger mosquitoes. How does this happen? According to LSU's Dr. Rebecca de Jesus Crespo, this is actually attributable to the differences in how we manage low-income versus high-income neighborhoods. We are abandoning our city centers, and that abandonment leads to the accumulation of waste. It leads to structural damages to buildings that can accumulate water, and those two things leads to creation of habitat for mosquitoes. The tires are a perfect environment for mosquito vectors that breed in container habitat. In addition to more mosquitoes, Dr. De Jesus Crespo found the low-income neighborhood to have a number of potential mosquito habitats due to abandonment, most prominently more discarded tires which fill up with water and provide a dark enclosed environment for larvae. That finding explains these studies that say there's a disparity in mosquito populations depending on a community's socioeconomic status. Now, this is worth monitoring for a few reasons. One, giant mosquitoes. Two, as we continue to urbanize, this provides yet another reason why marginalized communities need to be represented, heard, and supported. I think we all can get behind preventing mosquito populations from growing even more. And three, regardless of the fact that this situation could grow mosquito populations and make the mosquitoes bigger, it's also just not fair. I see no argument why, in the confines of the same city, one group should have to deal with more mosquitoes than another group, especially when you consider the health impacts and economic costs. Put all this together, and you've got a problem. All signs point toward mosquito populations growing. That leads to the spread of malaria, yellow fever, dengue, and several other deadly diseases in humans. That leads to agricultural impacts. Beef cattle, sheep, and poultry attacked by mosquitoes may not feed properly and suffer weight loss, and dairy cows may actually give less milk, among other issues. 
and that leads to economic impacts, whether it be healthcare costs, costs for farmers, decreased property values in mosquito-prone regions, or just reduced productivity. You can imagine people won't be as enthusiastic or efficient with outdoor work if they're getting bitten by mosquitoes constantly. I know even with one mosquito bite, it gets hard to focus. Whatever I was doing, I have to start from scratch. Last one, I promise. A lot of these impacts are concentrated on the tropics, where many of the world's developing countries are. But they're all over, and they look a bit different wherever you go, depending on the mosquito species, climate, healthcare access, socioeconomic status, pesticide history, and a lot more. So where do we go from here? First off, combating climate change would obviously be a big step. If hurricanes, droughts, and wildfires weren't motivational enough, then I think giant mosquitoes should do the trick. In addition to that, we have developed vaccinations for some mosquito-borne pathogens. Yellow fever, dengue, and as of 2021, malaria all have vaccines. Efforts to make these vaccines widely available in vulnerable parts of the world and educating people on their effectiveness could be one way to save a lot of lives. Unfortunately, other mosquito-borne pathogens such as West Nile virus, Zika virus, and chikungunya virus do not have vaccines, so vaccines can't cover us completely against mosquito population growth. But certainly given that malaria is by far the most deadly mosquito-borne disease, it's really exciting to hear that after decades of research, scientists have finally developed a vaccine. In terms of controlling mosquito populations, we also have a lot of techniques in our arsenal. I'm going to use Disney World as an example, because if you've ever been, you probably know that one, eating a giant barbecue turkey leg and then riding Space Mountain is a recipe for disaster, and two, rarely, if ever, will you be bitten by a mosquito. In the swamp. In Florida. How on earth did Disney manage to pull that off? Well, first and foremost, they know mosquitoes lay eggs in standing water. So they made sure Disney World had no standing water. Yeah, every pool has a fountain. Every building is designed to ensure water doesn't pool up on it. And there's drainage ditches all over the property designed to keep all water moving at all times. If only that were true of the roller coaster lines. On top of that, Disney chooses plants that don't allow water to puddle in them, they stock bodies of water with fish that eat mosquito larvae, and when they do spray, which they do have to do, they use liquid garlic, which is a smell mosquitoes hate and people don't actually notice. If they did, I'm guessing they'd just assume there's a Luca-themed restaurant or something around the corner. Disney even set up carbon dioxide traps around the park to catch mosquitoes and learn how best to eradicate them, and chicken farms to test the chickens and see if a mosquito with a certain pathogen had been in the area. Chickens don't get sick from these viruses the way other animals do, hence the choice. All said and done, this program is pretty remarkable. To stave off mosquitoes in Florida, is almost as hard as staving off key lime pie in Florida, or men who steal a crossbow and stuff it down their pants in Florida. That one happened earlier this month, actually. But according to Rob Pimentel, who has been covering Disney with videos and podcasts for years, this is no feat of Disney magic. 
At the end of the day, as nice as it would seem, it would be impossible for Disney to completely rid their property of mosquitoes. However, all things accounted for, they do a pretty good job of trying. Sometimes it feels like Disney magic, but like most of Disney's magic, it's really the product of the thousands of individuals who put in the work every single day. It would be really easy to look at what Disney's done and say, let's just do that for the whole world. And that's why I think Rob makes a really good point. There are thousands of people putting in work for this on a daily basis. That's not easy or cheap. They also designed the whole park with mosquitoes in mind. And I'm guessing you're not planning to tear your house down and start over with the sole purpose of preventing standing water, unless you're just, like, really mad at mosquitoes. So I think there are lessons we can learn from Disney. We could eliminate standing water in our communities by avoiding bird baths, cleaning clogged gutters, getting rid of trash, etc. To an extent that we're comfortable with it, we could create a landscape that supports mosquito predators, such as birds, dragonflies, lizards, and frogs. We could try natural repellents, such as liquid garlic, lemon eucalyptus, neem trees, and limes. So there's plenty we can do that isn't overly difficult, but it's worth keeping in mind that not everyone can pull off the extremely targeted program that Disney has created. It's probably a touch too complicated. What about synthetic pesticides? As scary as they may seem, they can be another tool in the toolbox. You have to make an assessment of what practices would harm human health and what would protect it. DDT has been shown to be harmful to human health, so most of the world moved off it, though there is some nuance there that we explored in our DDT episode. But there are other options. BTI is one pesticide that is extremely targeted toward mosquitoes. It kills mosquitoes, but is not harmful to humans or other animals. But especially with climate change speeding up mosquito evolution, pest control programs are most effective when they aren't heavily relying on just one pesticide, because if they do that, mosquitoes can build up a resistance. Pesticides may sound like the cheap and easy solution, but even if you use safe ones, there's still quite a bit of thought that goes into the process. I get that mosquitoes are a really tricky issue. There's no one way to eradicate them, and if there were, that could very well cause issues of its own. That said, mosquitoes are just one more reason why combating climate change is worthwhile, and in the meantime, we do have some strategies to stave off disease. And if we can get this under control, we'll save lives, be healthier, protect our livestock, grow the economy, improve some local and global injustices, and make sure everyone in the world can have a taste of Disney magic. Well, minus the riding Space Mountain immediately after eating a turkey-like part. Do you want to sleep in and have a breakfast that makes you feel superior to everyone else? If so, Blueberry Oat Bars are for you. With Blueberry Oat Bars, you've got the breakfast equivalent of an oatmeal raisin cookie, minus all the sugar that makes it taste good. Want them to last longer than three days? Sounds like you'll need some plastic wrap. Take that, seals. Blueberry oat bars. Uh, you know what? Those actually sound really good. I take all that back. I'll just use Tupperware. 
The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Amanda Tokesh-Peters, Assistant Professor of Biology at Centenary University. Dr. Tokesh-Peters, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You've researched a number of insects, amphibians, etc. Mosquitoes are obviously a prominent one in your work. Tell us how you got interested in these species and what kinds of things you've researched about them. I kind of got started with this small side project early on. Uh, looking at mosquitoes, and that just evolved into this entire dissertation. <laughs> so I kind of got hooked early on. I've really enjoyed doing a lot of that work, though. It's really complex, the systems that I work in, and I find that really intriguing, and it's an exciting challenge. So I've uh, wound up sticking with that a little bit more now. Climate change is threatening to worsen the prevalence of mosquito-borne diseases, but since climate change doesn't affect the planet uniformly... I would guess mosquito-borne diseases won't change uniformly either. That said, with COVID, how an outbreak in one part of the world can lead to outbreaks in other part of the world became very clear. So how do we classify this? Is an increase in mosquitoes bad across the board, or are there certain parts of the world that you'd be more concerned about than others? We're going to see very varied effects depending on what region of the world we're looking at and depending on what those climate change impacts are. For instance, when we see areas that are gonna be experiencing increasing rainfall, those areas are more likely to see an increase in the number of mosquitoes overall, likely the number of vector mosquitoes specifically, which is gonna unfortunately correlate with an increase in mosquito-borne disease. So it really is location dependent, but we do see with changes in rainfall, with changes in temperature, um, and changes in humidity, we're going to see some major changes in what mosquitoes are where, so what assemblage of mosquitoes we have in different places, as well as the abundance of those mosquitoes, so how many we're seeing at any given time. How does it vary regarding the type of mosquito? Really, one of the big things that we expect to see is that we're going to see more invasions and more range shifts of different mosquito species of concern with climate change. One of the big ones with that is Aedes albopictus that we've already seen invading new areas across the world. With that comes an increased risk of mosquito-borne disease that's transmitted by Aedes albopictus. So if you've ever heard of the tiger mosquito, that's what I'm specifically talking about. They have spread in the last probably 15 years pretty rapidly through the eastern U.S. And with that, unfortunately, comes the increased risk of disease from those mosquitoes. I'd always just subconsciously associated mosquitoes with heat since I grew up in the Northeast. We're used to them in the summer. But as I understand it, mosquitoes sort of have an upper limit. They can decline if it gets ridiculously hot. And it's largely about, is there more water? Is there more humidity? So to what degree is temperature a direct driver of mosquitoes? And to what degree is it the change in temperature leading to humidity and rainfall? So mosquitoes actually have thermal optima um, or optimum temperatures that they can survive at. And again, it's very species dependent. We see that certain mosquitoes survive pretty well at higher temperatures. Certain species do really well at cooler temperatures. But every mosquito species has its upper and lower limits. So 
right now, what it kind of looks like is after we cross a certain threshold um, within that given species, let's say the temperature is extremely high above that upper range of that thermal optima, what we're going to see is that those mosquitoes are going to have a much lower rate of survival and less prevalence in that area. Same thing if it gets extremely cold, if they pass that lower thermal optima. So they kind of have a sweet spot and that sweet spot is largely dependent on species. But unfortunately, we've seen with certain mosquitoes, they seem to be potentially able to adapt to changes in temperature, which is definitely of concern. And one of the things that a lot of mosquito-borne disease specialists are really interested in and hoping to find out more about it in the coming years. In some cases, it appears that that's already the case. Some of them are <laughs> um, due to genetic plasticity and some other factors. It seems like some are able to survive at slightly higher thermal optima. So it really depends on how much higher we're talking about. If we're talking about a degree or two higher in certain areas, again, regionally speaking, Unfortunately, yeah, it seems like some are able to kind of withstand that. Sometimes we also see behavioral changes in the mosquitoes and where they'll go. So they may change what time of day or how much they're coming out in a given day, dependent on that temperature as well. So if it's a minor change in temperature, they may be perfectly fine with that. If it's an extreme change in temperature or a thermal shock, that may be a very different story. When we look at mosquitoes in maybe a more temperate context, we do see a lot of seasonality here, let's say in the northeastern US. But when we look at more tropical regions, rather, we can see some level of seasonality there too. Instead of correlating with cold, like we see here with winter um, and you know heavy snow and things like that, instead it's really more heavily correlated with things like wet seasons and dry seasons. So in the wet seasons, obviously, you're going to have a lot more mosquitoes, whereas in the dry seasons, it's going to be a lot less in a lot of those regions. You mentioned how important pools of water are. Is there really a way to like large scale limit or prevent standing water? Because it seems like with increased rainfall, increased tropical storms, that could become a really, really big issue in the future. Yeah, so that is a fantastic question. Unfortunately, with increased rainfall and with increased pooling, again, we're going to see more mosquitoes able to lay eggs. The larvae that hatch out of those eggs able to survive in those pools and really without the threat of a whole lot of predators and then ultimately emerge into adult mosquitoes. So as we have more pools of water present, we're gonna see that increase. Unfortunately, in many cases, you're not gonna be able to necessarily tip and toss water as traditional guidance would have us do. That being said, you know every little bit that we can remove from the population does make an impact. Um, so you know we always discourage folks from having non-maintained bird baths or maybe pieces of plastic in their yard, things like that, that can accumulate water and make those little pools the mosquitoes like so much. So if we can even just reduce some of those things, that can really help a lot in terms of cutting down on the amount of mosquitoes that you may come in contact with. But in terms of broader scale climate level <laughs> impacts, we're unfortunately going to continue to see more of these pools forming and an increased risk of this. So one of the big things that for mosquito control, folks actively try to do in addition to removing those pools where and when we can is to try and use integrated pest management or trying to essentially 
be very targeted about how and when we're managing those mosquitoes. So doing things like tipping and tossing standing water, doing things like applying certain types of pesticides in the right place and right time. Again, we want to try and be as ecologically friendly as possible. Um, so limiting the use of that in many cases, unless it's needed. Trying to implement new things like sterile insect technique, which essentially aims to reduce the mosquito population by introducing sterile males into the population. And males don't feed on blood, so they're not going to be biting you any more than they already would. But when those sterile males mate with females, they're not going to be able to produce viable offspring. And so we can reduce the population that way. And so these are just some examples of how we're able to use integrated pest management to try and control those mosquitoes to some degree. Another big part of the mosquito and pest control conversation is DDT. Has DDT come up at all in your research and what are your thoughts on it? A little bit. So as far as DDT goes, many countries have now outlawed its use due to other subsequent ecological impacts. However, there are some countries that for a variety of socioeconomic reasons, um, sociocultural reasons, they may choose to still use that. And I think that it's very country dependent, depending on whether individuals choose to use that and how exactly it's being implemented. You know, I think the important thing in terms of pesticides, and you kind of mentioned this already, is good stewardship and knowing when it's appropriate to utilize those and just being smart about how they're actually applied. So yeah, I definitely get asked about DDT periodically and folks being curious about pesticide use in general. Um, Again, it's just being smart about how and when we use certain types of pesticides. And when we get into pest control pesticides, we have to think about the fact that pests can mutate. They can become resistant. And I know that's kind of the whole point of integrated pest management to try to use multiple strategies at the same time. But have you seen any issues with resistance when it comes to mosquitoes and pest control? Yep. Unfortunately, mosquitoes are one of the big concerns when it comes to pesticide resistance. So they are definitely... um, in some cases, becoming more resistant to some of the pesticides that we've traditionally used, and even some of the newer pesticides. So again, integrated pest management and actually being responsible with how and when that's being used is really important. I think that's where some of my particular curiosity about using things like sterile insect technique come in, though. Particularly, you know, again, my interest is largely microbial, but any sort of sterile insect technique is going to primarily aim to Um, not use pesticide or limit the use of pesticide and instead manipulate the population by using these sterile males in place of that and reducing the population that way. I think this whole discussion can be a little scary, perhaps, because we've sort of talked about this, but climate change is going to continue to happen for several decades. So these mosquito issues are almost certainly going to get worse. Knowing this, what steps do you recommend we take to adapt? What would be your message to policymakers as a biologist? Well, I think some of the big takeaways are things that, as a larger community, we've advocated for for a long time. Um, So things like personal protection, making sure that if you're going out into an area that you know has 
a substantial amount of mosquitoes in it, wearing long pants, wearing a long sleeve shirt if possible. Again, making sure you don't overheat, wearing light colored clothing so that way you can identify them and be able to, you know, hopefully take care of them before they can bite. All of that definitely comes into play. But on a larger policy scale, having more infrastructure available for testing, more infrastructure available for monitoring mosquitoes themselves, more infrastructure available um, and increased resources for control. All of that goes hand in hand with helping to reduce this problem long term. That can definitely seem scary, but if we have the right tools, we have options at how we can approach this. Dr. Tokesh Peters, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And again, thank you so much for having me. This wraps up episode 75 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout out at the end of the show by leaving a five star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict. Or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from SciShow, TEDx Talks, the National Library of Medicine, LSU, and Midway to Main Street. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownies Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash peril and promise. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.